Well, good morning. You guys can take a seat. Well, happy spring break. Uh, you guys are here. Uh, and I know some of you are like, spring break? I, don't, I just go to work on Monday, okay? Hey, and I'm praying for you too, okay? Um, if I do not know you, my name is Thomas. Uh, typically, I'm across the street in our youth ministry, uh, working with our 7th through 12th graders. Love what I get to do. It's always a joy to be here. Um, but uh, one thing I want to do before we kind of get started with uh, our, our sermon today is just invite you to pray. There are a lot of different teams, uh, missions, missions teams going out from our church this week. Um, some are going overseas. Um, but one in particular, our youth ministry is sending 18 high schoolers to New York City. Um, and they're going to be working in a neighborhood with a high Muslim concentration. Uh, and, and so there's going to be talking to shop owners, talking to people who own restaurants, and just having conversations about Jesus. Um, and so it just blows me away that 18 high schoolers would do that with their spring break. We also have about six college leaders going with them, and then three staff helping lead. Um, and uh, maybe the biggest prayer request is we leave at 2 a.m. Uh, I, I don't even know if it's tomorrow or just tonight. I'm not sure yet. Um, but please be praying for our team as they go out. But um, anyways, as uh, we get started today, I just want to start with a confession uh, to you guys. Um, I am not, I was not born in Texas, okay? And I know some of you are like, whoa, hey, yeah, no, it's okay. I was actually born in Illinois, um, about 45 minutes outside of Chicago, um, grew up in a town called Glen Ellen, um, and I uh, lived there, born there, and then lived there until my freshman year of, uh, of high school, and in the summer after my freshman year, my parents said, we're moving to Texas, and not just Texas, we're going deep in the heart of Texas, okay? We're going to Houston. Um, right? And, and so it's like not on the board. It's like deep, uh, right? And, and uh, I remember uh, when I found out we were moving, there was uh, images that came into my mind of what Texas was like. I had some family who had lived in Texas, but I was like, rootin' tootin', what's going to happen to me? I am not sure. Um, and, and I remember like, okay, it's fine. Like, okay, we'll do this. And I remember I used to mow my lawn uh, in Illinois, right? And I would just mow at any time I wanted, like in the summer. And I remember when I, we moved to Houston, I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to sleep in. I'm going to mow my lawn at 2 p.m. Like, it's going to be great in August. And I, I almost died that day, right? And it was just this, like, humidity wave and shock. People would say, like, howdy and, like, wave to me on the street. And I'm like, what is your angle? Like, what's going on? Like, why are you so nice to me right now? Uh, I remember for the first time, uh, I had never had Chick-fil-A. We didn't have Chick-fil-A. And so in high school, I had Chick-fil-A for the first time. And I was like, what is this? Like, fast food? This is not fast food. Um, it's like, I've had Arby's. What? This is different than that. Um, but it was just this new experience. And all jokes aside, it was also one of the, 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 the hardest things that I ever went through during that time of my life. Right? Because I grew up with all these hopes and dreams and thoughts about what my high school career was going to be like. I watched my brother and my sister graduate from our high school in Glen Ellen, and I thought that was going to be me. And then we moved to Texas, and it's different. And all the friends that I had grown up with are now gone. And I'm in this new place with new people, getting to walk into a high school for the first time, right? and not knowing a single soul. Uh, and it's, it's scary, and it really rocked me as a person. Now I'll say, like coming around, like I love Texas now, right? Like I'm, it was, I went through the fire and then now I'm like the humidity, it just, it moisturizes my skin. It's great. Uh, this is amazing. Um, it, it was funny. I was uh, teaching at our, one of our youth events a few years ago and um, I moved when I was 15 and so I had just turned 30 and I was like, I've now lived the majority of my life in Texas. And like, there was like a standing ovation. They're like, you, yes. And I was like, people from like Illinois just don't do this. Okay. Uh, there's not this much pride, but uh uh, man, we all have hardship that we go through. 
Now, the question that I want to talk about today is how do we remain resilient even in the face of hardship, right? When our world is turned upside down, we're, we're dropped into a new experience, when we're dropped into something difficult. Now, for some of us, it's not moving, although maybe that is your story. Some of us have strife in our families, right? Maybe there's divorce or there's conflict or there's miscarriage or there is hurt and pain. There's people that you thought you could trust who have let you down. We all go through difficult things. We all go through hard things. So the question is, how do we become a people who are resilient? Now, what is resilience? Resilience is not avoiding hardship, right? Like, resilience is not being able to maneuver around hardship, okay? People who maneuver around hardship, there's a technical term, they're called soft, right? Okay, those are people who, they can't, they just, they, they avoid hardship. Resilient people are able to go through hardship and maintain their character, maintain their soul, be able to stay who they are. They are not changed by external forces. Their character, their behavior, their fortitude is not determined by what happens to them. How do we become a people like that? How do we become Christ followers like that? While there's a lot I could say about becoming resilient, what I want to actually do is talk about how we can become a people who are resilient through the practice of worship. How do we become a people who are resilient through the practice of worship? So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3. This story, uh, if I was uh, to bet, you probably have read it or at least heard of it um, in VBS or otherwise. This is the, this is the story of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going uh, before Nebuchadnezzar and him throwing them into the fiery furnace. Again, a story that is very famous and popular. But to provide a little bit of context, I want to start by just reading Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, to show you the hardship that Daniel was walking through. And it says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So I want to stop right there um, and just talk about this. Israel, you know, they have had different kings and and all this thing. And they actually had split into Israel and Judah. And they're at this time um, in their history where now this outside empire has come in, the Babylonians. And they actually besieged Judah. They surrounded the city, literally besieged it. The word besiege is to cut off, to actually choke out the city. Think about like a snake wrapping itself around its prey and just choking the life out of it. They had surrounded the city and actually taken Judah, they had taken captives. And so Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were part of that group that was exiled into Babylon because they had been conquered by this foreign power. Now, in chapter 1, you see them uh, basically being indoctrinated into Babylonian culture, right? They offer them food and choice wine and drink, and most people just give in. But Daniel and his friends say, we will not defile ourselves Which is a way of saying, man, we are not going to punt on the Jewish law that was given to us. We are not going to eat things that defile us and block us from worshiping our God. And they are rewarded by God with wisdom and understanding. And Daniel is even given the ability to interpret dreams. And then in chapter 2, you actually see Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And then no one is able to interpret it. 
And then Daniel comes forth and says, hey, I know a God who can interpret dreams. And he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Nebuchadnezzar is so blown away that he moves Daniel and his friends into positions of power and influence in the Babylonian government. And that's where we find ourselves in the start of chapter 3. But things get dicey. So read with me, Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, about 100 feet, and its width was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to everyone, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, and treasurers, the judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the province were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. My first point this morning is this. Resilient people know that they are worshipers. So what you have in this Babylonian empire, what's ironic is uh, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream of a statue, and Daniel interprets it. And there's even, he even attributes some glory to God. And in the very next chapter, he says, you know what, that was a pretty cool dream. I'm going to build an idol. I'm going to build a statue commemorating me. And he builds it up, and he puts it, and he sends out a memo. It's like a company-wide email. Hey, everyone come in. If you're in the government, come, and I want you to help me dedicate the statue. All you have to do is just bow down and worship this image. Now, he is tapping into a reality that all of us experience, right? He is saying, hey, we all worship something. I just want you to worship me a little bit. Because if you look at Nebuchadnezzar, he's a young king at this point, and he is trying to unify the Babylonian empire under his rule. His dad has recently passed away, and he has just been king for a few years now. And he's saying, how can I unify them under me and my greatness? I will have them worship me. Because that's something natural for all of us to do. Now, I want you to realize this. You are a worshiper, and you're like, okay, like, that's pretty intense. Some of you are like, that's fine. Some of you, like, what I don't mean is worship leaders. I've heard many of us sing, right, and myself included. We should not all be worship leaders, right? But we are all worshipers, right? We worship something. To worship something means to attribute it glory and honor, to say that thing is worthy of praise. That thing is worthy of attention and glory. That thing is and to put it in 2023 language, is awesome, right? Like, it's just to say, I'm attributing worth and glory to this thing. And again, we think of singing often when we think of worship, which is a huge part of worship. But worship is also all the in-between moments, right? It's all the in-between moments that we experience as people, right? Our very lifestyle, our, the very way that we conduct ourselves, I want to show this first. This is from, uh, actually, I don't have it up here. This is from Romans chapter 12. It says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves 
as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, and this is your spiritual act of worship. Paul says, hey, to worship something is not just to sing and to make offering. It's actually to offer up yourself to that thing. To say, this thing dictates how I spend my time, my money, and my life. Now, the world that we live in does not try to discourage worship, right? The temptation that the world gives us is not to say, hey, don't worship anything, right? Because we are all worshipers. Look at what Paul says uh, in Romans chapter one. He says this, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Look, at Paul says the problem in the world that we face is not that there's a lack of worship. It's that we worship the wrong thing. He says, we worship the created rather than the creator. Now, if you're like, okay, I'm not a worshiper. What do I, just think about who, anyone in here in Aggie? And some of you are like, do I admit this? Okay, yeah, you just all whooped, right? Okay, think about it. There's, a, there's something in us that wants to be a part of something bigger, right? You, didn't, you weren't just born an Aggie. Well, some of you are like, yes, I was, okay? <laughs> On Kyle Field, I was, yeah. And, and, but, right, there's something in us that when we get around A&M or we get onto campus, like your first basketball game or your football game, maybe not a football game this past season, but maybe a basketball game, right? And you, you experience something and you say, man, I want to be a part of this. This is bigger than me. There's something in you that rises up and says, I just want to yell and raise my hands and be a part of this and paint my face maybe. I don't know. Like, I just want to tailgate and be, a... there's something in us that just wants to give worth and honor. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to tailgate, but I am saying is this, there's something in us that wants to worship. Right? I remember for me, when I was in high school, before I was a believer, my biggest thing was music. I just loved music, and my life was kind of just wrapped up in music. That was where my identity was. Right? And, and, and okay, let me write music. Let me, let me, I can find, I can relate to music. Um, I could go to concerts and whatever, and you'd see people on stage. And even though it wasn't a worship service, per se, right, there's just something in you that's like, man, I just want to attribute glory to the person on stage. Again, we are all worshipers. So the question we should ask ourselves is where is your worship, right? Where is your worship? While worship culminates, again, in our public gathering together, worship is often all the in-between moments of our lives and how we spend our time. So I have a few questions I want to ask to help you diagnose. Again, these aren't everything, but this is something helpful to say, where is my worship? Who decides how you spend your time, right? How is your schedule determined? Like when you come up to the start of a new semester or, you, or, or you're considering your career path or you're considering, man, what is this week going to look like? What's the first thing that fills your time? That's often where our worship is. Who decides how you speak and who you, how you talk or even who you talk to? That can be an indicator. Man, am I, how am I choosing words? Who am I trying to impress? Who am I trying to get favor with? Who do you give credit to for your achievements? Right? When you accomplish something, where do you say, who, who's deserving of praise and honor? And even this, where do you find your identity or your community? Right? Where do you say, man, I primarily identify as this? Like, I'm a, I'm, I'm a part of this group. Again, that can help you identify. Just like Daniel's friends here. Right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we are all asked to worship something. And resilient people know that. They know I'm a worshiper. 
So I want to go to our second point here, and it's this. Resilient people worship the right person. So read with me in verse 8. For this reason, at the time, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the band, even the bagpipe, right? All kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Did you know there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? These men, O king, have disregarded you, and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Right? This is what we call in the game tattling. Uh, right? They're like, Nebuchadnezzar, did you know that there's certain people that are not, they, they heard the bagpipe and they did not listen, right? Um, right? These, these people, they're called the Chaldeans, which was a, a part of the Babylonian leadership. Uh, they were actually known for interpreting the stars to help predict the future um, and different things like that. And so they were considered part of the, wise, the group of wise men. And, and so they would have been a part of the government body. So they would have seen this invitation they probably have worshipped the idol themselves and then said, hey, there's, some, there's a group of people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that are not worshipping. And they call them out. Now, pure worship, right, undefiled worship is what we are created for. You were created, not, you know, right, we are all worshippers, but you were created to worship something in particular. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understand that. And they say, we will not defile ourselves. And so what you see here is that they rock the boat a little bit because they will not compromise. You see this throughout all of scripture. David, when he's worshiping the Lord, is like dancing and he's doing all these things and people are critiquing him. They're like, hey, you, you, shouldn't, do, you shouldn't worship God like that. Like you're dancing like a fool. And he's like, I will be even more undignified than this. Right, and then a '90s worship song was born out of that. Okay, um, and, and I'm saying like, there's pure worship often brings critique. Hey, why, why don't you just go along with this? Come on, just just stop. It's not that big of a deal. So what I want to talk about here in this section is how different ways that we can worship. The first way is this: we can be idol worshipers, right? We can be idol worshipers. We can give our lives to worship things other than God. We say, I'm going to worship academics, I'm going to worship my career, I'm going to worship even my family, often good things we can give our worship and attention to, right? It's worshiping anything other than God. But there's a second way that we can worship, and it's this. I, I like to call it kind of Jesus plus worshipers, which I think this is pretty popular sometimes, right? It's where we say, God, I am going to give you myself, I'm going to worship you, I'm going to worship Jesus but there's something else that you don't get to have access to this, right? If you picture rooms in a house, it's like, you can go everywhere. Just don't go to that room. That's like the junk drawer of my life, and I don't want you to see it or touch it. It could be a relationship. It could be a way of talking. It could be a career. It could be what bitterness or whatever. You say, God, you can have reign in my life, but not this part. And you say, okay, what's the big deal about that? Like, I'm mostly worshiping God. I want you to think of this example. I, I heard this from Ben Stewart, and I just love the example so much. But he said, picture yourself. All right, back 
when you were in high school or college and you had that crush, right, for the first time or whatever. And, and you know, right, you see that girl maybe and you say, okay, I am going to write her a note, right? And you're like, aw, that's so nice, right? And like, I'm going to write the things that I love about you. I love the way that you uh, do this. You're so skilled in this area. I love that, that shirt that you wear. That's so great. And you write it all down and you make it rhyme. And it's like, man, that's, look at this. This is great. And then you close it and you draw a picture on the front and you draw a heart. And you're like, this is my heart given to you. And you can have it, right? Or whatever. And you're like, this is cheesy. And, right? and, and even though it's like, kind of looks broken or, you know, it's like you're not an artist or whatever, you have given that, the response of that girl, right, the response of that person is what? This is amazing, right? You are floored by it. You're like, this, is, this means everything to me. But just imagine also that this guy also created a second note, right? And he also writes his feelings and thoughts. But it's not about person one. It's about someone else, Right? And some of you are like, mm-hmm, I know. Uh, and, and they write, they, you, you know, you write out, and he sets the same poem and all these different things, and he draws a different picture. He draws, I don't know, the sun or the heart, and he's like, you're my sunshine, or whatever. And he gives this note to someone else, and they receive it. What is the reaction of this person over here now? It's, it's actually, it goes from joy to disgust, right? It's like, man, you, you, you're, you're worshiping, you are giving yourself to two different things. Now, when we organize our lives like that, when we say, man, God, I'm going to give you most of my life, just you can't have this last part, man, it, it should be something that brings disgust in our hearts, right? It should, be, it, it should say, man, that's not right. Look at, what, look at what God says in Malachi chapter 1. He says this, Oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. If you were to read this entire chapter, what you see is that Israel is offering and making offerings and making offerings and offering sacrifices. And God says, would you just stop? He says, because your hearts are far from me. You're giving yourself to other idols. The things you are offering are not according to my law, right? You are offering blemished, uh, blemished animals that you cannot sell. And he says, your heart is somewhere else. Yeah, you're giving me some of your time, but there's something else that's vying for your attention. And he says, I wish there would just be someone who would shut the doors of the temple and say there's no more sacrifices happening because what is taking place is disgusting, and I think that's where many of us can find ourselves sometimes. Even as believers, we say, God, yes, I'm here, but there's something else. Is there something there for you? And then the third way that I think we can worship is to be holy worshipers, which I think is the way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look what uh, John chapter 4 says. This is Jesus talking. Jesus says, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers, right? Jesus is talking uh, to some of his disciples, right? And he says, hey, there is a place, uh, right? You don't have to go to a place or be in a certain area or whatever. And he says, no, you worship the Father in spirit and truth, in the truth of who he is, and by the spirit of God. It's not about a location. It's not about uh, a specific building or a place. 
It's about a person. And he says, I want you to worship me like that. Like, you don't have to take a road trip or go to this certain area. He says, I want you to worship me in spirit and in truth. Now, why is this the best option to be holy worshipers? It's because whatever we worship, that is where our foundation is. Right? Our worship determines our foundation. So here's the secret. Everything in this life will fail you. It'll either betray you or it'll either be crushed by, by unrealistic expectations. Everything except one person, and that is Jesus. Now, you can say, okay, I'm going to give my life to my career. That's great, but your career will come and go. Think about the pandemic that just shut down so many different jobs. Yeah, there is a day where you will retire. You'll be passed over for promotions, right? There will be things that happen in your life. That is a foundation that cannot sustain. Your family, love families, right? But it is not meant to be your God, to say this is supreme above all other things. They cannot carry those expectations, and what happens is you treat them as God. They will be crushed because they cannot meet those needs. They cannot sustain you. They will ultimately fail you as your God. There is only one who is deserving of our holy worship, and that is Jesus. Right? I love reading through the book of Hebrews because in the book of Hebrews, the author just says over and over and over again why Jesus is the one who is worthy. Right? He talks about the angels, and he says Jesus is better than the angels. Right? You've seen the priests, and you've seen their system. He is the better priest, the most high priest. Right? He is a compassionate and high priest. Right? He is uh, the one, he's our brother who understands uh, uh, our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way like us, yet was without sin. And he just goes over and over and over. And he says, he is the better David. He is the better Adam. He is the better Moses. He is better in every single way. Because he is the one who is worthy of our worship. Now I want us to read uh, in verse 13 here. Because look what happens in the story. It says, then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you, uh, uh, sorry, bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? If you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? I think this is an amazing testimony to the, to the status that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. Because look, the king of Babylon, he has been a ruthless king. Right? In chapter 2, when he couldn't find anyone to interpret the dreams, he just says, we're going to have all the wise men of the land just killed. Right? He, is not, he is not shy in that. But he actually gives them a second chance. Now just think about that. Like the favor that they had. He's like, I like you guys. Come on. Give me a break here. Right? He's like, let's make this happen. Right? And he says, what God can deliver you? And look at how they respond. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, 
Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You see that pure, undefiled worship that's there. They have resolved in their mind to say, I'm going to worship Jesus and Jesus alone. And that establishes a foundation in their life where they say, as Paul says in Philippians chapter one, right, to live is Christ and to die is gain. They say, you can throw us in prison, right? And I'm gonna preach the gospel to the, the, jail, the jailers there. You can set me free and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go be an apostle and travel and spread the gospel that way, right? If you kill me, I get to be with Jesus. There's this solidified foundation in his heart because he worships. Now, when I talk about worship, also, oftentimes we, again, we think about just songs and it's our, but it's also our lifestyle. But the songs and the, what music and how we sing is so integral to this. Think about what's happening when we sing on a Sunday morning, right? We're not just like reciting songs, right? This is not like a, like a, like a choir. Like, again, I, I've, I've made this joke before, but like if you're sitting in like in the two or three rows in front of me on a Sunday morning, it's like, I'm sorry because I'm not a very good singer, um, right? But what we're doing in that moment, yes, we're shouting praise to God, but we're also rehearsing the truth of who God is. We're reminding ourselves that God is holy, that he is worthy, that he is gracious and kind, that he's a God of justice, that he is a God who will make everything right someday. And as we worship him like that, it solidifies in our souls who our God is. And it makes us unshakable, just like the three men in this story. You were created to worship one thing, one person, and that is Jesus. Where is your worship? Let me jump to our last uh, story here, or the last part of the story. Let's keep reading in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made so hot the flame of the fire slew the men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire still tied up. So you see in this story, Nebuchadnezzar is filled with wrath, right? He lives up to his, his uh, MO at this point. He says, let's make this furnace seven times hotter right? It's almost like he's, just, he's like, turn it up as much as it will go. It's so hot that the people that are trying to throw them in actually get destroyed themselves, which is just horrible to think about, right? And if you can picture this furnace, it would have been about two stories high, right? 10 to 20 feet or so. And it would have had a giant opening at the top. And that's where you would typically put the ore or whatever metal you were trying to melt down to make into whatever you needed to. But there would also be a door at the bottom, where you could put in all the fire and all the fuel and everything else to make it as hot as possible. So if you can picture they're up on the top of this, right, and the flames are just going out of control, and then they are, the, the people carrying them up there are consumed, and they fall in. And we should be asking ourselves, what is going to happen, right? And it's this. 
Read in verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Now, this is my last point right here. It's this, resilient people know there is safety in holy worship. Resilient people know there is safety in holy worship. So there's two parts of this safety that I want to talk about. The first one is this, there is safety because of God's presence with us, right? As we worship God in holiness and we make that a practice in our life, right, we become aware of God's presence. He actually draws near to us. Look at James chapter 4. Says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's this practice, right? Jesus talked about this when he was talking to his disciples in John. And he says, right, abide in me. And then what happens? And I will abide in you. If you make your home in me, if you give me everything, I will make my home in you. I will be with you. Think about the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And what? I will be with you until the end of the age. There's something that happens when we choose to worship like this. We become aware of God's presence. Yes, he's omnipresent. He's always everywhere. But when we fill our lives with idols, we become blind to God's presence in our life. We become blind to what he is doing and that he is here with us. Now, we get a vivid picture of it here in Daniel chapter 3, right? Nebuchadnezzar is like, wait, 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 didn't we only count to three? Like, did someone else fall in there or what? And he's like, yeah, yeah, we only threw three guys in there. And then he says, there's the presence of someone else in there. Who is it? And the text says it looks like one of the sons of the gods. Now, theologians are totally unsure what this is. They, you know, some people think it's an angel of the Lord, who is there and providing protection. Uh, one theory is that this is actually the pre-incarnate Jesus who has showed up and is with these three men. Personally, I, that's an ex- I don't know what the answer is, but that second one is really exciting to think about. But regardless, God's presence is with them in the fire. There is safety in holy worship. Now, I want to do a a PSA a little bit because what I am not trying to say is, man, if I worship God in holiness and there is safety in my life, even if I stub my toe on on that thing on the bed, I'm safe, right? No. Oftentimes as believers, we experience more hardship, more pain, more loss. Think about John the Baptist, who Jesus himself said, man, there's no other man like him. He is holy, John was a righteous man, and as he's sitting in prison and Jesus is on the earth, John is doubting. He's saying, hey, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, I am, but I'm not here to release you from jail. And John is later beheaded in prison. This is not a promise that, man, if God's going to be with me in the fire and I'm going to be okay Right? Sometimes that is the case. Even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego admit that. They said, even if our, our God can do this, but even if he doesn't, we are going to worship only the one true God. But there, regardless, we're not always delivered out of our circumstances. We're not always free from harm. But what is promised is God's presence with us, that he is here. And some of us just need to be reminded of that, that God is with us through whatever hardship we are facing. But there's a second thing as well 
and it's this. There is safety in knowing that God is at work. So I want to read the end of the story here, starting in verse 26. I think this is one of the coolest parts. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire, and he responded, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, your servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies, nor was the hair of their heads uh, singed. Nor were their trousers damaged, praise God. Nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. So just think about that. Like, they, it's as if they were never in fire, right? If, like, I walk into Fuego for, like, 45 seconds, I just smell like Fuego. Like, I just, like, it's, like, if I'm near a fire pit or whatever, right? And it says they didn't even have the smell of fire on them. And then look what happens in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's, my command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. It ends with Nebuchadnezzar worshiping God, right? He's, he says, man, blessed be the name of God, the God of the Jews. That's a Babylonian king saying that. Then look at verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to rubbish, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. And you see that he makes a decree in the Babylonian empire that he oversees, and he says, no one should speak ill of the God of the Jews. Then he gets off the rails where he's like, and if you do, I will burn your house to the ground. And you're like, okay, you, you should have stopped back here. But no, right? And, and he pronounces this like protection. Just like think about that in the Babylonian empire in exile, God creates this. He's at work behind the scenes. And as I was studying this, it just dawned on me, some of Daniel's contemporaries at this time are people like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Some would date the book of Obadiah as being written during this time period. Now, I just want you to think, I don't know this for certain, but if the king of Babylon, as he's taken over the Jews, and he says, I'm pronouncing, I'm making a decree to protect the God of the Jews, I can't help but think that that helped the works of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and even Obadiah spread, that they were able to be edified, that, that those books were preserved even because of the faithfulness of these men and God working through them. I just love to think about that because there's safety in knowing that God is at work behind the scenes. It's not just his presence with us, but it's also his work among us. Now, I want you to think for a second about, um, you know, you show up, you get invited to like a party or dinner, right? There's a lot of things that go through your mind. The first one is, do I want to be with these people, right? Sometimes the answer is, I don't, I'm not sure, right? Uh, or whatever. But, right, and, and you try to finagle your way out of it or whatever, that, right, we, are, we can be honest here, um, but man, if you know that your best friend is going to be there, if you know that there's someone that you, that's your brother or sister, and they're going to walk into that space with you, right, it doesn't matter, maybe some of the other people, you're like, it's going to be fun regardless, I have my buddy, I have my person with me, 
right? And, and it doesn't matter how bad the food is or awkward the conversation is, or it's like, yes, we've talked about the weather. It is humid. We get it, right? We all live here. And it's like the small talk, no matter how cringy, that person is with you. Now, that's an example, small picture of how we move into spaces when we worship God in holiness and we're aware of his presence and aware of his work in and around us. It's like having that person with us. I will be with you to the end of the age. We can step into any scenario and say, God is with me. He can deliver me, but even if he doesn't, I don't have to worship or bow down to these gods. So to conclude here, I want to recap And it's this, resilient people know that they are worshipers. They know that they are worshipers. They worship the right person, and they know there is safety in holy worship. I want you to think about that. Are you a person of resilience? Where is your worship? To help you think through this, I have a couple application thoughts here. The first one is basic. Basic question, where is your worship this morning? Where's your worship? When you think about those questions I asked earlier, about your time, about how you spend your money or whatever, what comes to mind? And then how would you describe your worship? And are there, is there a clear idol in your life? Or maybe Jesus has most of your worship, but not all. Or is it holy worship? And then this last one is just to prioritize time in worship. Like, I talked about how worship is a lifestyle, but it's also done through song, right, singing. We're going to have a moment here uh, at the end just to kind of respond in worship together as Corby leads us. But also, I think, I think it's helpful for us to remember and, and say, man, we were built to worship God. And maybe we've gotten off of our rhythms as the semester has gone up or we never really recovered from the COVID, whatever. And, and it's like, man, I have not prioritized just gathering with other believers to worship. And you just need to repent of that and say, man, I need to gather and worship together because as I do that, it, res- it makes me resilient in who I am as I walk in this world. So I want you to use this time however you need it. So let's pray together and then respond in worship. Father, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. God, we adore you. God, if we just confess right now that we are, we fall short of worshiping you in holiness. And I just pray that you would just gently help us to realize where those places are where we compromise the things that we've allowed to just take too much precedence God to be to have too loud of a voice in our life help us to become like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who are unwilling to defile themselves in worshiping idols God may we take strength from that God, help us to love, to learn to love worship and to see it as a priority in our life. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.